So when you're sad, what do you do? Believe it or not, the internet is full of all kinds of crazy things you could do uh, when you're sad. Everything from cry, write bad poetry. I'm not sure why bad was a suggestion. Maybe because most of us don't write good poetry. Uh, listen to music, exercise, create a sculpture of your feelings, draw your feelings, paint your feelings, dance and sing your feelings, yell your feelings, start a blog. Not sure I would recommend that one. Uh, talk to others. Yeah, right, that's good. Journal, write a letter, clean something. You're welcome to come to my house. There's plenty of things to clean if, if you're sad and that's, yeah, that's your thing. Um, look up words in the dictionary to describe how you're feeling. Rip up paper. Hit a punching bag. And, and from my own experience with the three little girls, you could you know, cut your own hair if you so desire. You can put nail polish pretty much on anything. You can start drawing on things. You can like pull the dog's tail until the dog starts biting you. All kinds of options available. And, and some of these um, suggestions on things you could do, ideas, um, when you're sad, could, could be employed in a different way when, when you're happy. You can cry tears uh, of joy. Uh, but you wouldn't express uh, sadness in, in the same way that you would express joy and uh, celebration. For example, I'm excited about the return of uh, real football coming this week. You guys know I'm a Packer fan. But uh, what, what would DJ do if we go to the Packers-Panthers game and I'm dressed in all black, I'm uh, carrying a phone book to rip up, you might think I'm not looking for Packers to play all that well. And I just sit in my seat the whole game just drawing sad pictures of... He'd be worried for me. And he should be. Because, no, it's, it's a time to, to celebrate, to have fun, to enjoy. A time for tailgating, for feasting, enjoy some uh, good beer, wear a cheese head, and eat cheese curds if you're me, uh, to cheer and, and be excited and we have a similar thing going on in our passage today. Uh, the disciples of John uh, questioned Jesus for not expressing appropriate sadness. And Jesus proclaims that it's a party mode time and not a time to be characterized by weeping and sadness. Though he'll mention, what we'll see in our passage, uh, a time when it is very appropriate for such feelings, uh, such emotions to dominate. So let's start as we work our way uh, through uh, this passage. And, and as we come to verse 14, you'll, you'll realize that uh, this is three incidents in a row of Jesus facing opposition. A couple weeks ago, we studied uh, from the scribes uh, where it says, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, last week, from the Pharisees. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus responds. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And today it's the disciples of John. You know, Matthew sees them as a very a suitable group 
uh, to be asking this question. For example, uh, in contrast, Mark uh, presents the question anonymously. And, and their objection here places them siding with the Pharisees, as we see in verse 14. Why do we and the Pharisees fast? To two very different groups, uh, significant difference theologically, practically, but here uh, siding together. And just as the religious leaders uh, should have been the most adamant supporters of the Messiah. I mean, that's who they were waiting for. But instead, it was the outsiders, as we learned the last couple of weeks, not the insiders. See also here that we would expect John's disciples uh, not to be the ones objecting to the practice of Jesus and his followers, but they should be supporting him. They should be joining his team. But, but not so fast, at least just yet. Jesus was this ex- expected king, but, but come in an unexpected way. And many people didn't see that yet, wouldn't see it. We see this appropriate sequence here following the scene of Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. This question about fasting. And Jesus' answer here defends his behavior, his practice. But it goes far beyond that in providing a paradigm for his ministry. And the question is concerning of fasting. And you might be thinking, I think we've talked about that here at church before. And we have just a, a couple chapters ago. And actually, even earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, remember Jesus's 40 day fast before sparring with the devil? And did Jesus's disciples fast? Well, we certainly know that during times like the Day of Atonement, they did. However, here we see the focus seems to be on the weekly fasting routine that had become customary in Jesus' day amongst Pharisees, other devout Jews who would fast every Monday and Thursday. And you see in verse 15 here, and Jesus said to them, can the Wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. The focus uh, of this fast seems to, at least one of the major focuses, is on a mourning. The mourning, why, why would they be mourning? For, well, for the state of God's people, for the state of Israel. And Jesus responds by giving an analogy, providing justification for his disciples' lack of fasting. He goes to a wedding. Wedding guests do not fast during bridal celebrations. Fasting would be completely out of line because a wedding is a time of joy, a time of celebration. And in case it doesn't already seem pretty obvious, like it's like that's pretty universal truth right there. But there's plenty of rabbinical uh, literature at the time, first century, you know, arguing that. Um, Jews were exempted uh, from certain religious obligations during the time of uh, a wedding. And in in a similar manner, Jesus argues that the disciples, his disciples, can't fast because this is a time of joy, a time of celebration. This is 
uh, time to be partying, not uh, to be mourning and fasting. But, but what justifies this analogy? Well, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the, the bridegroom. His presence with the disciples make it a time of joy. His presence indicated the arrival of the kingdom. Again, a time for joy, a time for feasting. Remember from uh, chapter 8, a few weeks ago, um, remember this messianic banquet which characterizes Jesus' ministry. And remember even from last week, verses right before this passage, what is Jesus doing? He's eating, but with sinners and tax collectors. People you would least, the least expected people you'd um, think would be coming to this messianic banquet. You'd think all, all the insiders would be coming, but no, no, it's, it's the outsiders who are invited. And, and what's Jesus' point here? Is that he's ushered in a new covenant, a new age. They've been waiting for it for a long time, but it comes in an unexpected way as Jesus comes humbly inviting tax collectors and sinners to this messianic banquet. But, but don't miss it, still living in the old age. And this new covenant, this new age, radically alters how followers of God should live. So as we see first off in verses of 14 and 15 here that the presence of Jesus brings joy and celebration. Once more, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So, so why this joy? Well, Jesus' kingdom has been inaugurated. Was, was Jesus outrightly condemning the fasting of the disciples of John, the Pharisees here? Uh, my, my answer to that would be, be no. This type of fasting was appropriate, could be appropriate in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. See in verse 15, uh, all the markers of time, as long as the days will come, and then. The idea here is that, but now the, the Messiah has arrived. The kingdom is inaugurated. It's supposed to be a full-on party mode. And fasting isn't appropriate uh, this time, if Jesus is manifesting the arrival of the kingdom in his uh, mighty deeds, his words as we've just seen. Uh, Jesus is proclaiming that they're basically living in the wrong time period, the wrong salvation historical time. They're missing what's right in front of them in the ministry of Jesus. They're missing this fulfillment that they're fasting to you know, build up expectation, praying that this fulfillment, this Messiah will come and he's right in front of them. They think this is a sign of their piety, their cultivation of expectation. But actually it's a sign of their blindness, that they're, they're missing uh, this Jesus, this Messiah. They failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. 
And why this joy? Well, we see here that Jesus' death will shake everything, but it won't be the final word. Let me, let me explain. So, so when, when is fasting prescribed for the disciples uh, of Jesus? It says here, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So our gut reaction on this is probably to, you know, at least I'm first reading for myself, to look beyond Matthew, to look to like the words of uh, Apostle Paul, his teaching on fasting, maybe even look uh, to Acts or something like that. No beef with doing systematic theology. Everyone truly is a systematic theologian as you try to figure out, okay, what, what does this mean and compare passages of scripture we want to have a practice that develops from them the thing is we can't assume that every passage about say fasting is talking about the exact uh, same thing because Matthew has already presented some of Jesus's teaching on fasting you might remember from the Sermon on the Mount context of righteousness done in secret to please God in contrast to external righteousness to gain the praise of man. And Jesus has indicated that this type of fasting was applicable to him. It was also applicable to all his followers. So so back to our passage. But when is this morning type of fasting going to happen for Jesus' followers here? Well, well, Matthew's going to explain this later toward the end of his gospel. This is looking at the death of Jesus, the time he stayed in the tomb. That's when Jesus was taken away from his followers. It's a veiled allusion to his death. And the the language of being taken away suggests a violence to it. We've started to see the opposition to Jesus, and it's only going to continue growing as we work our way through this gospel. And we, we start to see very early on in this gospel that the death of Jesus was not an accident. It, it was the plan of our sovereign God since before the dawn of time. Jesus' death will send the disciples back to Old Testament days, back to old days. But even this early in Matthew, in his gospel, there's a hint, there's an implication that Death does not get the final word, the last word in all this. And, and why this joy? Well, Jesus is God with us. So, so we p- see the paradigm for when Jesus' followers should engage in this morning type of fasting like that of the disciples of John the Pharisees. Not necessary during the life of Jesus because well, they, they have Jesus, the Messiah, He's present with them. We'll do it, though, when Jesus is uh, taken away at his crucifixion through violence. So, So the obvious question becomes for us, so should we be engaging in this type of fasting? Now, a very legitimate question we need to answer. And my answer to that would be no. We'll see at the end of Matthew's gospel that we are not in an age characterized by the absence of Jesus, even though post-resurrection he's going to ascend to heaven. 
We're in an age characterized by his presence with us. He sends us out as his followers, as you remember uh, in the last uh, couple verses of this gospel, reminding us that he is present with us. He is with us to the very end of the age. His presence should bring us joy and excitement. This is what was prophesied in the beginning of this book when the virgin conceived. Give birth to Emmanuel, which means God with us. At the the time, they they didn't understand the extent and the glorious nature of this truth that Jesus is God with us. But we're blessed as we kind of work our way through the gospel. We're, We're seeing more and more how true Jesus, God with us, is. And what does it mean for us, this joy, this excitement, this party mode? Is the church just supposed to be one big frat party? Am I just trying to get you guys all excited for a, you know, Trinity's second birthday party next week? Uh, no, 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 not what's going on there. But we are a group of people who are to be characterized by joy and excitement. Now, no, it's not that we don't cry. It's not that we don't struggle. But we are overwhelmed with the presence of Jesus with us. The presence of Jesus as our king who has inaugurated his kingdom changes the way I see the world, changes the way I live in this world. And I have joy. It gives me joy that circumstances around me cannot rob me of. That joy should be present in our gatherings, but it cannot end there. It should be active in our lives the rest of the week. As we've been refueled by worshiping together on Sundays, by gathering together in groups throughout the week. I believe Blumberg is right when he pens All Christians would do well to reflect on whether their demeanor, lifestyle, and words convey to others, especially the unsaved, this joy of salvation and the lively presence of Jesus, or whether they communicate, even unwittingly, a dour, judgmental attitude. We're to have joy as we have Jesus, God with us. So so what are... What are different thieves of joy we are facing? One is the failure failure to recognize the presence of Jesus with us. It's not that if you are a believer here, if you are in Christ, it's not that Jesus is not present through his spirit living in us. But sometimes we live as if he's not. So so how, how do we remedy that problem? Well, it starts with communing with Jesus through prayer and reading God's word, the the basics of the Christian walk. How how can I expect to hear from God if I'm not regularly in God's word, reading it, meditating on it, uh, talking to God in prayer? And and the presence of Jesus changes us. Uh, so, So many people who are all about the presence of Jesus, have a very wimpy view of the effectiveness 
of that presence. If you live the same way as people who do not have Jesus inside of them, if you live the same way as them, you don't understand what the presence of Jesus is, what it is to do. If the people closest to you cannot see the activity of Jesus in you, I hate to say it, you probably don't have the presence of Jesus in you. The presence of Jesus transforms us. It changes how we live. Another thief of joy, a failure to see the world with a kingdom mindset, with a, a mindset on Jesus' kingdom. Here are just a few things that a kingdom mindset in me, in us, should say. It should say, I can trust the God who is building his kingdom and, and not lose sleep when uh, my kingdom doesn't seem to be going all that well. Uh, how many minor circumstances in my life would bother me less if I came in with that mindset? If I actually believed that? Kingdom Mindset says that I have eyes to see advances in God's kingdom even though they're not making the news, even though they can be easily discounted. Celebrating, seeing people meet Jesus, seeing people grow in Jesus, seeing gospel seeds planted, even though we're still waiting for them to be watered. Kingdom Mindset says, I can cheer God's kingdom even when I see progress that's not on my turf. For us here at Trinity, that's, you know, God sending out members, regular attenders to other congregations isn't losing if it advances God's kingdom. Well, we're into God's kingdom, God's name going f- forward, not building a kingdom for ourselves. And, and that, that hits, hits me, hits us, Hard as we'd love to see more people meet Jesus, grow in Jesus here. But are are we good with God if he chooses to use Trinity in a way that our membership never reaches 30? But he's building his kingdom. We'll never have that kingdom joy described in this passage if I'm wed to the idea that the growth of Jesus' kingdom must include 100 plus people here at Trinity. Think about that. If we're, we're to have that joy and excitement in the presence of Jesus and in his kingdom, are we okay if Jesus chooses to grow his kingdom the way he wants to grow his kingdom? He chooses to use us in that process, the way he wants to use us. Rather, if, if I'm overwhelmed with the glorious truth of Jesus' presence with us and Jesus ushering in his kingdom, the new age, I can rejoice with unquenchable excitement regardless of what's in my bank account, my title at work, you know, how many butts are in the seats here at Trinity. And Jesus expands on his response to the question concerning fasting by giving uh, two illustrations. 
here in uh, verses uh, 16 and 17. Here's his message. The new age and covenant cannot patch or be poured into the old. I I love this language imagery. Uh, Once more, verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So we see an emphasis on discontinuity here. To an audience that would like to see full continuity. They would like to, let me explain, they'd like to just add Jesus to what they were already doing. Add Jesus to Judaism. Do what they're already doing just on steroids. But, but that, that's not what's going down. Jesus is not just, just another prophet. At the same time, don't, don't miss the continuity that's revealed. We'll, we'll touch on that here in a second. The point is that Jesus makes traditional fasting of the religious leaders worthless. Though kind of foreign to us, the untrunk patch on an old garment it makes, makes some sense. You know, in our day and age, not too common. If you, you get a, a hole in shirt, jeans, or something like that, probably just go to the store and, and buy, buy one. But, um, you, you know, maybe, maybe you decide to sew, sew a patch on, you know, trying to make it trendier, increase the value. If I were to do that, certainly would not increase the value. Let me promise you uh, that. And, and the, the word here for garment isn't specific to a certain type of garment, though probably they're thinking something like a cloak or, or coat would be most popularly envisioned. The, the point here is that the garment's uh, been used for a while. It's rugged. And the sense is not that the patch pulls away from the old garment. It, if it did that, it could still be you know, better off with a patch than without. Instead, the, the pulling away is transitive here, that the patch takes away from the garment. It pulls at the garment. It should have fixed the hole in the garment, but actually ends up making it worse, making the hole bigger. And, and then Jesus goes from the domestic sphere to agricultural. It's a little tougher for us to understand this issue, putting new wine into old wineskins, because, I mean, aren't we into recycling these days? And things can be, you know, with modern advances. I mean, you can even recycle your motor oil and, you know, use it again if you so desire. So what's the big deal about using something like this uh, twice? Well, well, here's... First century lesson in wine and wineskins. Wineskins were typically made from like tightly sewn goat hides. Fermentation causes the wine to swell. Think bubbling, expanding, emitting gas. So the wineskins needed to be able to stretch. Old wineskins would have already been stretched and vulnerable to bursting. 
as we see the point Jesus makes here in this passage. And what would they typically do? Well, they'd use these old wineskins. They'd use them to store other things, but they weren't suitable for new wine again. This new cannot be poured into the old. You can't envision Jesus as the, the patch that just needed to be added to Judaism to fix it. You can't pour Jesus' new wine into the old wineskins of Judaism. And I found it surprising, the, the last few words of our passage here, and so both are preserved. This new wine poured into fresh wineskins. And, and it, yes, it's true, of also for the old wineskins, that by they could be employed for other uses, but just not for new wine again. But, but why is this relevant to this passage? As Jesus has been proclaiming that his arrival makes traditional fasting impossible. Well, well the focus is, yes, on the discontinuity, but, but there's a little bit of continuity that results from the discontinuity. Basically, you try to fit Jesus in the old age, the old covenant, it's going to burst. You're, you're going to have nothing left. But if you embrace this new age, this new covenant ushered in by Jesus, you, you'll find uh, that this is what the Old Testament has been pointing to all along. This is what Jesus has been teaching all along in the Gospel of Matthew. He's not come to abolish the Old Testament and the law, but he's come to fulfill it. You cannot try to live in both the new age and the old, or live in the old age just adding a few things from this new age. But instead, by embracing the new, the continuing value of the old is preserved. Our love for the Old Testament truly should be greater than that of a rabbi in Judaism today. Why? Well, it's not because anytime someone brings up a, something from the Old Testament where we feel a little bit uncomfortable with, we just resort to, uh, I, I don't, I'm a New Testament Christian. I'm not into that uh, Old Testament. No. Well, we love the Old Testament, and we've found the fulfillment that the Old Testament was pointing to all along. We found the Messiah in Jesus. Its significance is so much greater now that Jesus has come, and we see him as the Messiah. We see him ushering in the new covenant. And we might be tempted here today to take this as uh, solely information, because those of us gathered here, I assume most people listening to this, haven't come from Judaism. And we have little motivation to try to fit Jesus into uh, Judaism fit him within Judaism. But, but that's the wrong response for us today. It's much more than information for us. It's, it's meant to be applied, applied to our day. And when you think about it, do people today try to fit Jesus and his kingdom into boxes they have crafted? Yeah, yeah, that, that's certainly a thing today. It may Maybe you're here looking 
uh, for someone to inspire you to be a better person. Maybe you're looking for some principles, lessons to keep your kids on the straight and narrow. Maybe you'd like a Jesus who is palatable to all your coworkers, doesn't ruffle any feathers. Maybe you think uh, Jesus will just help you finding a better job, making more money, finding the right life partner, or, or aid you in, in you know, pursuing well, you know, what you've decided is your purpose in life. But guess what? Jesus isn't interested. You can't just tack Jesus and his kingdom on to your life and what you're already doing in it. We, we have seen that Jesus brings in his kingdom. He brings in a new age. He's invited us to join his kingdom. He calls us to join his mission. He calls us to worship him as he is, not, not what we would like him to be. If you're not a Christian here, count the cost. Jesus is not an add-on. You, you can't hedge your bets with Jesus just by going to church, you know, putting a 20 in the offering box just in case Jesus is real so you'll, quote-unquote, be, be good with the big guy upstairs. That's, that's not how it works. May you see the overwhelming worth of Jesus, so valuable that you'd be willing to give up all else to have him. And if you're a Christian here today, are you living in light of Jesus' arrival with this new age, this kingdom? Ask yourself this week in community group, would your coworkers agree with that? How, how about your, your neighbors? Does, do they see this kingdom in you, that you've been changed by Jesus, that you have unquenchable joy even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of tough times, that you found joy that circumstances in life cannot rob you of. Let's pray.